0: Hi, everybody. I'm here with Freddie Silva. He's one of our favorite interviewees at Gaia TV. And uh, this time we're going to be talking about megalithic sites. Last interview we did was on the origins of the Knight Templar, one of its more recent books. But now with people all over the world traveling to these sites on their summer vacations, I thought we should get to a little more familiar with why they were established, what they're about, and what they're capable of bringing into our lives. So without further ado, let's go to Freddie. Hi, Freddie. Love your
1: shirt.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's good to see you. Hey, I like this topic a lot, and I was just saying off camera, it's something that I think we should uh, probably do a continuation of because it's a really deep topic. But let's start out
1: first. Yeah. Because I'm literally working on a book right now about
0: it. Oh, you are? Okay. Perfect. So we can revisit this later on at Gaia as well, maybe next year or so.
1: Yeah. Hopefully if I can get around to finishing it. But uh, yeah, it's about a lost megalithic civilization. Who were they? Where were they? Uh, Talk about making it really easy for myself.
0: Uh, yeah, right, like you always do. You're an incredible oh. researcher. Okay, this time we're going to go to Egypt, uh, and we're going to look at some of the megalithic sites, and you say the blueprints for these sites were brought from ancient civilizations after the flood. And this is an area that really interests me because as you and I have discussed before in Hermetic texts, the culture of Egypt itself is a couple hundred thousand years old. And a lot of revisions on the ages of the main um, edifices such as the Great Pyramid, maybe 85 to 100,000 years old, meaning there was a very sophisticated, there were multiple sophisticated cultures whose knowledge was lost along the way. But these are evidence that some of it was not lost. So I want you to launch right in and start talking about the blueprint. What was their intention in creating these remarkable temples?
1: Well, the uh, Ed Fu building texts are a wonderful example of how the angels left for us a wonderful record of what they were doing before the flood. And uh, they were rebuilt by the Greeks, thank God, Uh, And uh, this is why we have so much information on them. And they keep telling us quite uh, clearly that every single time that there's a flood or a major event on the world, someone survives. And these people are always part of some advanced civilization, seem to form a kind of a a separate family from humanity. They're humans, they're described as humans. Uh, 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 But of course, they are much taller than everybody else. Uh, they sometimes have, have elongated heads, but uh, they do seem to form society apart, and one of the classic examples of the uh, text in Edgefield is how they claim that the survivors, uh, their mandate was to rebuild the former world of the gods. And the idea was to build these mounds, sacred mounds in Egypt and all around the world, strategic locations where they would, they would form the foundations of the future mansions of the gods uh, that will bring back and herald a new golden age. And you find the same story in Egypt. Um, one person that's married to his, uh, this is, sounds very incestuous, married to his sister who is also his wife. Uh, and then six other people. So there's eight people altogether, uh, one major uh, person and seven shining ones. And you hear the same story in India. You hear the same story in Easter Island, in in the Andes. So there were these groups of people that obviously had some kind of mandate to do. So if we start looking at places like the ground plan for the Great Pyramids, for example, which uh, Robert Boval, I think, has done a very good job of actually estimating the, the blueprint for that, was the spring equinox of 10,500 B.C., or maybe the previous processional cycle, that which is 25,000 years before. We don't know, but certainly it was before the Great Flood uh, 11,000 years ago. So if you look at other structures along the Nile, it's now becoming very obvious. Places like the Assyrian, which people have always said, um, it's an underground temple. Mm-hmm. Well, a group of geologists have actually gone there and looked at the mud uh, around the walls of the Osirian. And they actually looked at this and said, well, wait a minute, this is not actually a temple where they took a lump of mud out and put the temple in. The mud has actually built itself up around the actual stones. And the only way to get that kind of depth around the stones of the Assyrian is to leave it there for 11,000 years. So that was something that, again, precedes anything that we know. And if you look at the temples at the base of the pyramids, which are now heavily eroded, like the Valley Temple, they have exactly the same megalithic structure, same construction uh, design, same interlocking stones, same methodology. In fact, if you go to Peru, you find exactly the same structures as well. So this is part of a global project that they were undertaking in order to bring back a formal world that they obviously were quite comfortable with.
0: Okay, this begs a whole lot of questions, and one of them is um, that we call them the gods, or they may have even referred to themselves in some ways as gods. So in the research you've done, and we're going to talk about this in a little bit, you've had your own unique experiences. Mm -hmm. Who do you think these beings were? And were these particular structures um, built in these strategic places, spots on Earth, for their own sustenance, well-being, recovery, maintenance, or were they built for a larger purpose than just their own use?
1: I used to think that they were doing it in order to form some kind of a uh, coordinated grid in order to know where they were. They're based on pure mathematics. Uh, it's a very simple grid, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, it's just it takes you 15 years to work it out uh, once you realize it. Well, you know, it's there. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was just a matter of placing things so that they could easily be found. But as I've done a bit more research, it seems to be that these people have another idea in mind. Because part of what I also do is look at the energy of temples. And uh, there's now plenty of evidence, because we now have a technology to back this up with, to mm-hmm. recognize that every temple on the face of the Earth, without exception, is built on the Earth's intersecting lines of energy. Mm-hmm. what well, they call the telluric lines. Mm-hmm. So there's a deliberate thing that seems to be harnessing itself to the actual planet on which these structures are built. Now, we can ask ourselves a question here. Were these built to um, bring in the energy to anchor it specific locations? Uh, yes, because the human body is built on exactly the same laws, so the human body interacting with these sites also is influenced by these sites, and there's no end of people, uh, myself included, that have had no end of experiences at these sites because they do alter your state of awareness. That's one uh, argument. The second argument is, were they fine-tuning something on the face of the earth? Because there is, again, uh, a very curious description on the uh, building text that clearly states that in order to create a temple, you have to harness the enemy snake. And uh, using the symbology of the period, the snake really referred to the earth's telluric currents. It was necessary to dispel these energies from the site before you could build a perfect temple and maintain it so that the snake would not overwhelm the land and the temple. So,
0: I'm confused. One, one, One thing I'm confused about, I thought they deliberately chose places where you had a harmonic in those telluric fields.
1: You do, but there's also places that also fell foul uh, of the snake. And they talk about the enemy serpent overwhelming the places of the gods because they recognize, no matter how perfect you build things, the earth also has its own unique organism. It has to need to express itself over time. And they recognize the earth as being its own entity. Therefore, as much as you have control of the forces of nature, the earth itself cannot be told what to do. They have to work with harmony with what the Earth is trying to achieve. So they recognize that from time to time, things get out of whack. The Earth has to evolve in its own right, which, of course, brings down calamity onto the temple. So by harmonizing these mathematical blueprints around the world, and using ridiculously sized stones, by the way, which is really impractical, uh, I think they felt failed to actually bring a kind of harmony to the land after the uh, catastrophe of 11,000 years ago, which, of course, created the Great Flood from which the Earth had to recover. So in a way, by building the temples where they are, they were also helping to harmonize the planet, getting you ready for another major event that would be coming 13,000 years later, because they recognize that this is a cyclical thing. And I I dare say, ahead of the the book that I'm putting together, we're pretty close to the date, uh, within 20 years of when they expected this catastrophe to be. But uh, I won't go into the negative stuff right now. Uh, I'm going to do a little bit more research on that. But I do think that they obviously had control over the laws of nature. And that's why they were declared gods. Because back in the day, a god wasn't, you know, a guy with a beard and, uh, you know, with a big cape uh, that, you know, brings down uh, hell and brimstone to people. A god was someone, a person, who had control over the laws of nature, who understood those laws and was able to, you know, um, harmonize it, manifest it, or um, move it in a certain way that brought huge benefits to themselves and also to the people on Earth. Because unless everybody benefits... Uh, they basically are not doing their job. That is the purpose of someone in power, a God who is in charge of people. They have to bring the level of the lowest people around them to their level. That's how they basically worked.
0: In the best circumstances, that's how it should work. Absolutely. In
1: the best circumstances. <laughs>
0: yes. And that and, <laughs> <yes.
1: laughs>
0: and you say that when you go to these really sacred spots that um are the in quotes you say that 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 men are turned into gods or bright ones, so it's not just that these godlike beings with advanced knowledge, whether they be from somewhere here on earth with advanced knowledge or whether they be from elsewhere in the cosmos um they're the ones you're saying that essentially created the divine blueprints for this. But you're talking about the effect, once these structures exist, on men who enter, meaning men and women, humans who enter the field. Let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, basically they designed the temples with a certain handbook in mind. So when you actually look at these sites around the world, they share the same blueprint, and that is that they're based on the same electromagnetic frequencies. They're all based on the foundation, which is water, believe it or not. Uh, this uh, geometry is very important because each geometry in nature uh, basically creates a certain environment which the Russians know very well about when they built rooms, built the specific uh, ratios and it induces a specific effect. So when you start piling these things together, it creates kind of a numinous quality of energy and anyone who enters this... Uh, Because you're entering into a mirror, a perfect mirror of the human body and of nature, you, by uh, its very process, become part of that perfection. And that's what they meant by turning a person into a god, into a bright star. If you can become like a perfect mirror image of nature to resemble the perfect uh, elements which are in the sky, which they felt to be the most perfect, examples of uh, of consciousness which is the stars then you become as a star as a god you become like us the people who already have been there done that and got the t-shirts
0: and you have had your own experiences having been in many many of these you take people on tours you've spent your adult life basically uh inhabiting these places from time to time and having experiences so let's talk about a couple of the more profound ones where you even may have had some encounters.
1: <laughs> and when you're not expecting this stuff to happen, it's even more interesting. And uh, I think I actually prefer it that way. I mean, I hear about this from other people and uh, you think, oh, that's kind of cool. But you never think it actually happens to you and you don't go there looking for it. And that's why, why I like doing what I do because you kind of go to place like the Great Pyramid and uh, which you know, has a potential to do all kinds of things. And uh, I was there with uh, four friends of mine who uh, – we didn't get private access, by the way. Uh, all things kind of manufacture themselves in a way that uh, we weren't able to have the place to ourselves. If you've ever been there when there's been 100 people in the Great Pyramid, it's hell. It's, the place is so finely tuned. You drop a uh, pin on the ground, and you can hear it vibrating across the whole building. So we got to the king's chamber, and uh, everybody left. And I thought, well, let's take this opportunity to try and do a little bit of quiet work, clean up the mess that people leave behind. So what we do is we do a lot of energy clearing. Uh, again, we are energy beings. Anything that we do or say has an imprint on the stones themselves, because the stones are made with a lot of quartz. So just like a computer. The stones will remember what you've done there. So a lot of people go to the Great Pyramid and places like it and they uh, you know, they do silly things. Uh, they give it sort of um, tangible and intangible attention. The building doesn't really like that. It wasn't built for that reason. It was a very serious place of work. So everybody leaves, the lights go out. We're in complete darkness and we figured we'd do a little bit of toning, get the chamber you know, in the right resonance, uh, very ancient technique. And uh, I could see literally as I'm clear as I'm seeing you right now, a ring of people come straight out of the stones, uh, quite tall, and I'm quite tall six foot five. they were about eight feet tall, uh, dressed in this sort of uh, cloak this sort of uh, there were cloaks they made this sort of satin that went all the way down to their uh, uh, to their ankles. Uh, kind of like the descriptions of Vidakosha. I should that by the way. Uh, and um, they basically just surrounded all of us. And again, we're in complete darkness. I can see all of this. And we did this for about 15 minutes, and then we took turns going to the sarcophagus. And when we left, uh, the lights went on, and uh, there was a very angry Arab person at the bottom of the building shouting something because we weren't supposed to be there doing that. The lights weren't supposed to be off. And we went out into the daylight, and before you know it, It's clear that these guys, and for once, it was just guys. Usually, it's women and a guy. I'm usually the token guy. And there's four guys. They all wanted to say something, and no one wants to be brave enough to say it. So, you know, I'll say, all right, so I'll start. Did anybody see what I saw in there? And the next guy picks up the story. It's like, oh, the tall people that came right out of the rocks. The next person said, yeah, they're dressed, dressed in white, really, really tall. So I'm not the only person that saw this. No. So there's four people, four grown-ups who went there without knowledge that this was possible, not expecting anything to happen, and we all had the same experience. Uh, that changes your life, and I've done enough of this also to keep, you know, track of what goes on. And another one of my favourite experiences was at Sacsayhuaman in Peru, which is. Uh, Touring and, and the to purpose is also built by the same people that built the pyramids. There are stones there that have exactly the same method of construction, and it's an unusual method, by the way. So I'm talking with my group of people, uh, this time taking a tour around, explaining about site such one Someone was filming me, and they were. it's quite clear that I'm having difficulty trying to talk, uh, which is unusual for me. And... Uh, What's happening at the time is that I'm actually hearing someone or the temple or something about the temple talking to me in my left ear. They're telling me about the true purpose of the site and look for this or make a note about this. And in the back of my mind, I'm saying, just shut up for a second because I have to talk to these people and they think I'm drunk. I'm making no sense. (laughs) And uh, we finished. And I said, okay, everybody go off and play and uh, I wrote down everything I could remember as quickly as possible, went back home, uh, and did a bit of research on the stuff I was getting, and lo and behold, the information was absolutely correct about Sak the purpose, the alignment, and that also told me about a bigger alignment with three other temples in the area. Essentially, Sak formed a triptych of, of temples, and I never would have figured that out unless someone or something at that site to talk back to me and I hear this all the time from other people as well
0: okay so I, this begs the question what did they tell you the site was to be used for what was it built for
1: oh I'd have to kill you if I told you of course
0: uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's all on a tour right <laughs> exactly
1: uh, it was part of an initiation a secret initiation it was one of the main things that it was built for there was it was not a multi-purpose temple but the main attraction of the site, and they said there was a connection to Egypt. You have to look at the original name of the site. And the original name literally means the uh, place of the satisfied falcon, which means nothing in the Andes. But if a traveling Egyptian went there, they said, well, yes, that's a euphemism for Horus, the right. resurrected god-man of the uh, resurrected god-man Osiris. And I thought, wait a minute, could they have been doing the same initiation that they were doing in the temples of Egypt? And sure enough, one of the main symbols that you have is to do with the alignment at the equinox, the spring equinox, when you see Venus rising above the horizon before the sun. That is the mark of the risen initiate. And sure enough, the alignment of Saksai when you see it from the air, the main sight actually is this is live. You
0: can hear <laughs> somebody's delivering <laughs> a package freddie <laughs> yeah,
1: i'm just going to go for a second be back uh, <clears throat> they were basically saying that if you take the temple at the top of saxophone one look at the alignment and sure enough it aligns exactly to the spring equinox and venus is rising several thousand years ago not as it is aligned today and the alignment is due to the actual perimeter of the stones because there's three tiers of stones on either side of the temple one has been uh, dislodged by the Spanish, but originally, when you look at the site from the air, it looks like the wings of an outstretched falcon. And if you keep following the trajectory to the second site, that's actually where they did the ceremony, where they literally were declared risen from the dead three days after going into this underground chamber that is made by hand out of solid limestone. It's a beautiful chamber called Kenko. And the third point, they said, forms a perfect triangle. And that perfect triangle hits exactly at the Cone which is the original temple, which marks the nail of the earth in Cusco. It's now the Cathedral of San Domingo. And that literally is a perfect triangle without exception. Uh, We're talking of a deviation of 800 feet in height where we are. So how they even achieve this is beyond compare, but that's just part of the ceremony that they were doing. It was part of a method that allowed you to connect with the other world, also the world of the gods.
0: Okay, so is this then starting to dovetail with some of the work you've done, uh, for example, in your book, The Lost Art of Resurrection? Are you finding these same themes recurring?
1: Absolutely. Uh, and it was part of the method by which they made the temples do what they do and the reason why they hold huge stones to where they are. Uh, there was a big purpose behind it. There was a, it was part of a big, big plan. Part of the method was to try and uh, get people to recognize, ordinary people to recognize that you are a god. Uh, even before, uh, before you're told you're not, when you were born, you are still a god. You are a person that's totally connected to everything, to every form of nature, to every point in the universe. But of course, our parents don't like that. And we get hit over the head and we're told we're not. We're just average people trying to make a living. Well, the idea was to build these sites on one level to get you to remind you that you can actually access this information on another astral plane whenever you forget the plot. So that's why they built these temples to last. The idea is that they were built with huge stones to get your attention, and they're not going to move despite earthquakes and meteorite strikes, and God knows what else you get hit with. So the temples were designed to last into a time in our future, from their point of view, Mm -hmm. when we really lose our uh, connection to the the earth, which of course is now, and ironically, we're going for the same change that they were faced with 11,000 years ago. And you may have noticed as well that NASA is becoming infatuated with meteorites, uh, just like they were infatuated with meteorites 11,000 years ago because they noticed you've got to keep track of what's going on around the Earth because periodically we get hit, but people will survive. The idea is to maintain your level of understanding of what you're connected to in the universe See so big uh, place in the big picture, and we design these buildings so you can go there instead of meditation and connect and get information. So it's part of that strategy of keeping humans, uh, getting humans what I call self-help centers to help us remind ourselves of what we've come here to do and give us a sense of the big picture that we're connected to it
0: desperately needed at this point in time um you know and we're untethered from anything real any longer so i mean mm-hmm. you know people think of this as a luxury to be able to go on a vacation to reconnect but the oh. truth is you can also find some it, it well not to the same degree but for me personally, I like going into caves because oftentimes you can find this quieting of energy in caves and start reconnecting with aspects of self that you can't get when you're being bombarded with noise and Wi-Fi and everything else. This, yeah. that's, like, that's like your uh, low-end version of a Freddy tour, find a cave. <laughs> but you brought up NASA a moment ago, and let's follow that thread a little bit. They discovered some magnetic portals in space, and you say that they are related or might be related to some of these megalithic sites you're talking about. So let's try bring the above and below together now.
1: Yeah, the ancient people. I'm uh, going back now to 8,000 BC at least, when the Vedas are claimed to have been written or at least rewritten. Because if you read the Vedas of India very carefully, the Tamil culture that wrote it said, "We are basically copying the notes from a previous civilization, and they were copying the notes from four other previous civilizations." Mm-hmm. And when you follow the trajectory of dates in the Rig Veda, you're basically uh, somewhere at 18,000 BC. So this information gets re-promulgated again and again and again. And there's a, a curious line there that talked about these serpents that slide along the ground, which are mirrored in the heavens, which are the arrows of sorcerers, which makes no sense to most people. So the symbolism is quite clear to someone who understands the symbolism, which is, the serpent energy that flows along the ground is mirrored in the sky. So whatever electromagnetic current is here is also up here, and also you could connect with the two by using the arrows of the sorcerers, which basically is the uh, uh, what they're describing was was the uh, the arrow refers to the focused intent of a sorcerer. Uh, which is essentially the person who is able to connect with the source, the source of things, in other words, the laws of nature. So once you have control of the the laws of nature, you can connect A to B and go walk about astral traveling. Mm -hmm. What NASA wrote in 2008, I believe, and I nearly jumped out of my chair when they used the word portals, They said, you know, uh, we have discovered magnetic portals linking the Earth to the Sun that open every eight minutes. Mm -hmm. And I thought, my God, suddenly we have modern technology and ancient uh, mysticism coming together because NASA was saying the same things. Every eight minutes, there's these flux events come out of the Earth. They reach a point in space just beyond the ionosphere that connect with these crossing lines called X-points, which then connect those magnetic events that go to the sun and possibly beyond the sun. And this brings us back to our original conversation about becoming a bright star. So if you examine the fact that the temples are all built on these X spots here on Earth, and these X spots are already marked in the sky, it doesn't take much to figure out that the two are connected, especially as the ancient people throughout the world, without exception, whether you're in Persia, in Egypt, in Indonesia, in Southwest uh, America... And for example, around the Kivas in uh, Arizona, New Mexico, they all talk about these temples as being connected to the sky by a reed of heaven. And that was their way of describing that no matter where you are, which temple you're in on the face of the earth, those serpents are corralling in that temple. You connect to the sky through this hollow reed, and that connects you to places far and beyond the sphere that we understand as the earth. That's what NASA essentially was validating, I think is one of the most important discoveries of our era.
0: Yes, I agree with you. And let's let's take the attention from the magnetic, as you say, uh, serpent, so to speak, um, as above, so below there, to the sun itself, because this has really been key to most of the initiations and the various temples around the world. It's a juxtaposition with the sun on some level. And you just mentioned the sun or even beyond the sun, where influences even beyond the sun. Shall I assume you're speaking about the great central sun, the hidden sun, where the information and intelligence flows from?
1: Oh, I think the only thing that limits you is your imagination here. I mean, one of the things I've been following for the the new project I'm working on is actually the... uh, a ridiculous association with Orion and specifically the belt of Orion. It happens on every culture around the world and they were very adamant that the gods who are here on Earth were very much human but there were also a level of, there's a certain hint of extraterrestrial quality about them as well which Native Americans talk about quite a lot. That's where you get into that grey area. Are we talking about extraterrestrials, human beings, or human beings that are able to be extraterrestrials and have the ability to come back, they're like humanoids. And they're saying that uh, there is some kind of a portal that actually connects them to the uh, belt of Orion as the half of the universe from which you can then go into all kinds of other points into the universe. This is like going down a rabbit hole. So eventually, I'm sure this eventually connects to a central sun, because as we know from the myths, everything is connected, nothing is separate. So we can, now, with our eyes, we can go from Earth to the sun, but how limiting is that? We're just looking at this from a physical point of view. They won't care about the physical, they cared about the super-physical. So beyond what you see is another level of reality, which you know is not only mirrored mir- mir- here on Earth, but you connect through various portals, various wormholes throughout space, which takes you in any kind of direction. And again, if you look at the uh, shamanic traditions of the world, the idea was not to be limited by your brain or your imagination. The idea is to liberate yourself from this mechanism called the human body, so you can go wherever you well please, which could be anywhere. So again, I think that the uh, the connection between the portals is endless.
0: So, as has been stated um, through various people I've interviewed, um, the research and in the work of George Adamski, for example, is that the human form is the preferred vehicle for intelligent life throughout the universes, that there are hundreds of thousands of planets, if not millions of planets, mm-hmm. that all have the human form. This begins, I think, taking us into a different consideration of what is ET or other yes. and what is us,
1: right? Yeah. Exactly, and I think that's where the confusion is, because I'm looking at a lot of the traditions, the oral traditions around the world, and it gets confusing. Uh, Are these people physically traveling astrally, or have they come from somewhere else? Because they seem to be quite acceptable to Native Americans, and if they were physically different from us, I would expect them to note this. Even out of politeness, uh, they will leave a kind of mark. Uh, And they don't seem to, for them, they're talking about them as if they're normal people, having a conversation with your uncle down at the pub or something. Uh, In fact, uh, bringing that up, I I just came back from hiking the uh, Horseshoe Canyon in Utah to look at the, uh, the, the petroglyph panel. And uh, I was having a chat with Clifford Mahuti before I left, and I said, well, I've always wanted to go there, Clifford. I feel I've known these people for a long time, and they seem very familiar, and I didn't want to say anything. And he said, well, you do know who they are because you have come across them before. I went to travel. I said, have I? I said, yes, you met them in the Great Pyramid. I said, I thought they looked familiar, and I've met them in Crop you
0: about the same beings with the robes, the sack white? Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. They're not ghosts. As they call them the ghost panels. They're not ghosts. Those are exactly the beings that I saw in the Great Pyramid, and I've seen them in crop circles, in the real ones, not the rubbish made by people, and in other place, sacred sites around the world. And those people are always associated with a group of people called the Watchers. And I'm not talking about the ones that get the really bad vibe because they're the ones that fell to earth and that they did silly things. Yes, there is that group. I'm talking about the bigger uh, central of watch the Watchers, who were actually referred to the, as the creator gods, yes. who are much more into the development of society and the enlightenment. Uh, they hardly ever get any attention, which is why I want to focus on them in my next project. Forget about the fallen people because, yes, they recognize that Earth girls are really attractive and that's what, essentially that's what happened. They said, hey, they look cute. And they basically uh, began to give away secrets that shouldn't have been given to humans in the lowest state of development back then, and that's where the problems began. So they get a, a kind of a pretty bad shift. But the Watchers, by themselves, the uh, essential group, are actually a core group of very spiritual people, and that's essentially what the Native Americans are talking about. So. Um, I I really wanted to sort of figure out, are these people coming backwards and forwards between time? And it seems to be that uh, what Clifton and people like him were saying was that, yes, these people come backwards and forwards through time, through places that seem to be associated with Orion as some kind of a a porthole in space from which everything is almost like uh, Grand Central Station. Uh, you know, where you can uh, embark to anywhere in the universe, but they didn't seem to make them look like they were just unusual-looking ETs that, you know, are so mythologized on screen, for example. I think there were actually people, and I agree with Adamski on this point, that are just like us.
0: That's interesting because uh, I remember one time interviewing Drumvolo, Um I said, okay, so what is this process? You say you're a walk-in, what's that process about? And so Drumvolo was detailing the process of uh, taking on the human um, experience and the key entry point was Orion. Now, it just coincidentally or not, um, a short time after that, a woman that I've interviewed named Joan Walker was talking about another individual's process of coming into Earth at, at this time. And through the same process, it was identical to the process that Drumbelow was talking about. And Orion seems to be this entry point. And then it would also move on with incarnations in, um, for example, in Venus. It, Venus has kind of the last stop before coming to Earth. Almost in a process of i don't know if it, it was more taking on more knowledge refinement density or whatnot but becoming more human so to speak but the starting place in those cases was orion
1: exactly and the belt specifically mm-hmm. uh, it comes up again and again and again it becomes kind of, uh, monotonous but there also is an inkling of a warning because of what i'm coming across again and again is a lot of places associated with Orion who are actually being deliberately shut down. And I'm beginning to tap into a lot of the myths that say that this was misused at some point. Someone somewhere began to misuse the energy associated with this uh, constellation or the portal. And as a sort of a, a way to sort of maintain a little this and make sure that it wasn't going to be completely abused, a lot of these sites have been shut down. Uh, there's a few in England, uh, which I actually can't talk about for that very reason that I'm aware of. Uh, the pyramids, to a certain degree, were closed and sealed off, and that's it. That's why we we'll probably will never find the chambers that are in there for that reason. Things were moved out of there to make sure that the buildings don't work in the way they're supposed to. Mm. Uh, there are other sites all around the world which have the vestiges. I, found, I just found one in the Orkney Islands, which is way up Towards Iceland in the north of Scotland, there's another series of sites up there. All of them really have been shut down. Uh, there seems to be a deliberate movement to make sure that this energy, and again, energy is just energy. It doesn't really give a damn one way or the other. It's uh, the problem comes with human intent, attaches itself to it, and unless you're of a high initiatic um, spirit, you are going to misuse this because you're going to get an inkling of this. And I can speak from experience. You know seeing people coming out of the woodwork in the Great Pyramid, it changes you. I mean, I'm lucky enough to have people around me who have taught me to watch the ego, watch how this stuff affects you, because it becomes an aphrodisiac. Uh, You begin to realize that you really are very powerful. You have to be able to take control and stock of yourself and recognize your part in all of this, not to overstep that boundary. Unfortunately, that's not the same for everybody. So I think, as I'm beginning to put these bits together, there were people that obviously latched onto the knowledge of the gods and began to abuse that, and that's where the problems began. And then you get the concept of the flood wiping out, you know, the uh, the naughty watchers. Uh, and the hybrids that they created. And that seems to track quite nicely, that there was something that happened where this energy and this knowledge was abused, and then it had to stay fallow for some time until then we regain that uh, position of centeredness in order for the gods to start people to return and show us another step forward. Because obviously, we can kind of do it quite a little bit by ourselves without messing everything up, or as we call it in the English language, buggering the whole thing up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so we do need a little bit of outside help, but we have to do the work, and the Hopi, again, are very good about that. They, they have a lovely quote about it. They say, we're the ones we've been waiting for. But... Uh, we do still need a little bit of outside help in once in a while, and, and that's why things like the crop circles are appearing, made by the same group of people, by the way, also made by the watchers, and they were saying exactly the same story, that, you know, we're giving you the information, we're giving you technological blueprints of these designs, they're built just like the temples, which is why I went on this, you know, 15-year hike, of, sort of trying to figure this out. Uh, and. Uh, you know, it's part of the development of the human race. You're going off again in the wrong direction, but enough of you are around with an open mind that if you look at the information given to you, there is really, really positive technological information, healing information. There's even healing for the planet that's going on. It's buying you time to figure out what's going on because you don't know, you've lost uh, track of what's going on on the planet. You've got, you know, the climate changes is upon you whether you like it or not, you have to be aware and prepared. So they're giving us the same tools, just like they did when they built these temples. So we're looking at a cyclical story that's coming around to meet us yet again.
0: Thank you for that. <clears throat> Absolutely. Let's go on to some of the scientific information that you've been able to gather, some of which is going to be featured in your new book, I take it. Um, something about an electrical engineer that was measuring energies in some French megaliths me- megalithic sites. What did they discover?
1: Oh, I like Pierre Um I found the information really by accident when I was traveling through Brittany. Uh, it was in, a, in this, uh, I think it was in a sort of a junk shop. a little sort of pamphlet written in French. And I thought, this looks kind of interesting. And I uh, began to read it with my rudimentary knowledge of French. And I thought, wait a minute. There's a guy, an electrical engineer, who was skeptical about these megaliths. And, you know, the Brittany area is one of the greatest concentrations of of some of the biggest uh, monuments in the world. Uh, are the few people are actually aware of this? So um, I looked at the, uh, the information. I thought, my God, this guy's actually gone out to actually measure the energy released and harnessed into these megaliths. So he stands with the dolmens, with the standing stones, yeah. the cans, and he finally did one of the best books ever on measuring energy and how it works at sacred sites. And he basically came to the conclusion that the standing stones behave like coils, the uh, dolmens behave uh, like attractors of energy, and the stone circles concentrate that energy. And he says, if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and the energy hasn't been grounded, you'll get one hell of an electric shock. And it's true, you do. Uh, You get a nice sort of, you know, you, you lose contact with your forearm for about 15 minutes. It's quite totally So he was absolutely right. What the, He was basically validating what the Egyptians were saying, that these places are alive. They're not just a bunch of rocks. They are specific types of rocks built on specific locations which attract natural energy, and they store it just like a battery. And then they release it, whether it's for the good of the earth or for the good of a human being or for other purposes we're still not quite aware of. He was absolutely right. So, again, nice that it comes from a skeptic because, you know, you can argue with those people, but when they follow their own argument and answer their own argument, it makes my work a lot easier.
0: (laughs) And in extreme situations when you enter those megalithic rock stone circles, you end up blasted 200 years back and find a very handsome Scottish man there waiting for you. Oh, I heard
1: heard about that. <laughs> I have not seen it. I have heard it, and in fact, uh, you know, I wrote that story years ago, and I was <laughs> really annoyed to find that someone's done a whole screenplay on it. I thought, oh well, never mind. Uh, and in fact, it's actually made uh, brought a lot of attention to these sites uh, yes. for better or for worse. Uh, and from my point of view, um, I like to take people to sacred sites when we're the only people there. Because I like to see that we're doing it properly. We're not going there to be tourists. We're doing it for the right reasons. Right. I like people to have the experience and go back and be recharged and go back to their daily, daily lives in a way that is completely altered them. And 99 times out of 100, it does. Uh, and so to find all of these people, you know, busloads of tourists showing up just to show it a little bit of super, uh, super, um, uh, a superficial interest, it kind of really rattles me. But at the same time, at least they're going there. So you don't, you don't know. It might just have an effect on a few of them, and it just might turn things around for our beleaguered planet.
0: There you go. I didn't mean to get you going on that. I knew that it was so. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's talk about...
1: Much fun episode.
0: <laughs> let's talk about Stonehenge and Avery, where there's been some monitoring going on. What were the results of that?
1: Now, uh, there was, uh, ironically, one of the guys that was actually uh, looking at the energy of, of crop circles had also been looking at the energy of sacred sites, uh, again, following the traditions, the myths, about the temples being living organisms. So we thought, okay, Um, uh, John Burke, the late John Burke, uh, planted all of these electrodes in the ground around eight and pens, quite a bit of work. And he monitored, as the scientist does, and he came to an extraordinary conclusion, and uh, the synopsis is that in the morning, or just before the morning, the Earth is kind of asleep. Uh, Wherever you happen to be on the face of the Earth at that moment, the gravitational field is weaker. Uh, it's the furthest part from the sun. So just before the sun starts reaching the horizon, his instrument showed that the ground current around the sacred sites begins to be attracted to the actual temple, especially the henge monuments, that is, the ones with the, the big sort of circular dip that goes around them, like Stonehenge and Adenberry. And he said, suddenly, as the sun uh, t- uh, touches the horizon, the energy is attracted to the henge and it starts spinning around the henge like a particle collider. In fact, it behaves just like a particle collider because all the standing stones leading up to the hinge are faced with the positive and negative polarity of the magnetic field towards each other. They're repelling and attracting atoms like this, as you do at CERN in Switzerland. And just at the moment that the Sun crosses the perimeter of the horizon and releases the highest level of electromagnetic frequency on the face of the planet at that moment, a doorway opens in the temple and the energy comes out of the hedge and into the actual altar of the site. And that's when the readings go, you know, completely over the cliff, uh, sometimes as much as twice as the uh, frequencies of electromagnetism outside the site. Mm. And the energy stays in the site. And like a human being who talks too much and works too hard during the day, the energy dissipates throughout the day and by night, it's gone back to its normal level. It, the Egyptians said it very well. They said, you know, uh, we address the temple each morning as though we're r- rousing a sleeping person from slumber. Mm-hmm. So they actually addressed the e- different parts of the temple like a human person. It's like, okay, I have to get up now go back to work. The tourists are coming.
0: As I recall, um, I, I interviewed John Burke before he passed away, and I believe that the charging of seeds was also part of his worth work yeah. at megalithic sites. He was finding that these sites would produce incredible growth in seeds and health yeah. in seeds as well. So maybe you can talk about the more biological effects of being in these spaces, not just for seeds and plants, but for humans. Uh,
1: yes, exactly. You've made the very good observation that in order to create these enormous megalithic sites, you'd have had to have a very large population whether they get the uh, method to uh, feed so many people. Uh, You would have had had at least four to five different crop rotations, which in those parts of the world, like Central America, would have been quite difficult because the weather had changed. Well, he basically figured out that when you put, excuse me, the seeds on top of the platforms of the pyramids in Mesoamerica, and places like that, that suddenly, in germination tests, the seeds were actually outgrowing seeds of a similar nature that were just put in the middle of the earth. So the idea was that you take the seeds again at the specific times of the winter solstice and the spring equinox, which are of course renowned throughout the world as specific points in the movement of energy. They would take those seeds and blast them and they would would give them to people. And that's how they basically were able to have energized seeds that obviously gave them a much greater uh, output in production. Mm -hmm. Ironically, we Mm -hmm. find exactly the same technology in crop circles, which has exactly the same energy the same imprint of information, and John Burke, same guy, uh, he also looked at the uh, the seeds from the crop circles, compared them to man-made crop circles and samples, which are just normal. And again, in laboratory tests in Michigan, every single time they came from a real crop circle, the uh, seed germination test would be twice as big as normal yes. or man-made crop circles. So there is something to this that, again, this technology has no expiration date. It keeps coming back again and again.
0: I think the first time I interviewed Freddie many years ago was on. You, you had written a book on crop circles. Am I mistaken, or is that how? You right. are? Uh,
1: <laughs> I, of course, uh, I had hair back then.
0: Well, you didn't have any hair then either, so <laughs>
1: <laughs> that makes me feel better. I just got
0: it. So don't be self-conscious. You don't need hair. Um, But what I'm wondering is, through the years, and this is going off topic just a little bit because people are fascinated with it, as the years have gone on, what in your assessment is happening in terms of more or less percentages and the locations in England and so forth is... uh, What percentages of crop circles would you say are authentic and have these energetic emanations as opposed to Doug and Dave or whomever?
1: (laughs) Well, I will prep this by saying people are not going to like what I'm going to say, but it's the truth. Uh, Sometimes the truth hurts a little bit. Uh, I have been pressure to write a follow-up to my my worldwide bestseller, uh, and I haven't done so for a good reason. The reason is that since the day i published that book, it's almost like eerie when I think about this. Uh, the book comes out in 2002, and after that, virtually everything is man-made. The phenomenon mm-hmm. just stopped. Uh, I would say since 2003, from the evidence that I've gathered and the, from, uh, the colleagues that I work with, we can find evidence of real crop circles, maybe in 1% of designs in England, they appear more of the genuine ones are actually North America, oddly enough. And we knew that from a psychic in Britain that was getting the original messages of the phenomenon before it even happened. That's how we knew. And sure enough, uh, there's a, a lovely man by the uh, name of Jeffrey Wilson, a good friend of mine, who's, I, I have to say, probably the last uh, bona fide researcher of crop circles on the planet Who's actually alive and working? Uh, and he's done a lot of work in uh, the Ohio Valley and also in uh, the Canadian Prairie. And uh, we get the few concentrations there. And the weird thing is, it's the simple circles that are now the genuine ones. Oh. So they're tracking attention. And a friend of mine was very prophetic about it. He said, You know, the moment I publish all the information about crop circles, what really differentiates them from the hoaxes. And the harmonics that go to the design, the hoaxes are actually going to make them look a lot better. And they did in 2003, 2004. They're looking really good because now they understand harmonics. The visualization of the design, which from the air, looks really impressive. And yes, they are impressive nowadays. But if you go look at the actual nitty-gritty of what makes a real crop circle, the information isn't there anymore. There's no energy. There's no bent stalks. There's no change to the cellular structure of the seeds. The soil disruptions, the water disruptions, all of these things that make the real phenomenon do what it does. Mm-hmm. So that's the sad part of it. The information was a, was a piece of communication. It started in the late seventies. It finished in the year two thousand two. Now they're fine tuning it. We've been given the information. Now we have to play with it. It's just like any good conversation has a beginning and an end. So and, that, and that's the problem. People expect it to be. Um, a circuit performance every year. Oh, we can't wait till next year. Yes, but Crop Circus is not here to perform for us. They are a very important piece of communication. We have to go back and look at the original information and apply it and learn from it. Uh, and nowadays, there's so much frivolous information and attention being given to them. Uh, I, if I was making them, I wouldn't want to bother with these people either uh, because you just want to go there to get a little jolly. That's not what they're about. Sure, they make you feel happy. That's not what it's about, there. So it, you've got to be grounded about this. I know it's not going to make a lot of people happy, but I've got to be grounded about this because this is the most important information we've been given in centuries, and it's a shame to sort of dilute it with things which are quite obviously man-made and done to distract you. We've got plenty of distractions. They're called presidential elections.
0: Oh yes. <laughs> oh, indeed. We don't even need to go down you that got rabbit
1: hole. Of distractions. <laughs>
0: <laughs> in fact, speaking of rabbit holes, okay, um, we have we have um, so much more to talk about with this book. We'd actually go on quite a long time. But what I'm kind of thinking here is, um, if you can help us with a general statement of where, for example, uh, say in the Ameri- in the Americas, um, say in North America for Americans and for Europeans. Um, maybe give us a few of your quick recommendations in terms of places you feel we could really charge ourselves if we choose to go on a charging kind of vacation. And then a lot of these other principles about the energy and how it's used and so forth, I think we can talk about in our next interview because we have another at least another hour to go on that. And by oh the time your book is done, we'll have even I'll more. Yeah, so just, just give us an idea. Where in the US would you go spend your tourist dollars to recharge energetically and connect with uh,
1: this? I probably should send it to the ones where I'm not going to find you at so I can have the place to myself. Um, it depends what you're looking for. And I mean, I'm serious about this. Uh, your body is a certain series of frequencies and it has its own musical uh, notation. Uh, depending on where you are at the time, you will be attracted to certain sites which have what's missing. Um, so even though it might be one close to you, what you actually need is something much further away. Uh, personally, I just came back from the Native American Southwest, which I adore. Uh, Shiprock is one of my favorites. It's actually a landscape temple. It is what temp- man-made temples were designed to imitate. And if you ever want to be humbled by energy, raw power, I suggest you go to Shiprock. Uh, you'll need a four-by-four, by, four, by the way. Uh, it's quite a uh, bit of a, a dirt track to get there, but uh, you will be altered. Uh, the petroglyph sites in the southwest, of course, are dreaming places. That's why they uh, put these things on these rocks. They are places that show what these people were actually dreaming. So those are two of my favorite places in, uh, in uh, North America. Um, in uh, Europe, at the moment, my infatuation is with Scotland because the sites, there's few people that go there, uh, even outlander people, find it hard to go up there because it's a bit of a, you know, bit of a climb to get all the way up to the islands, But uh, the places around the island of Lewis and Walkney, for me, are so profoundly clean and so uh, uh, removed of people, and removed from society, that you get a sense of what a true sacred site is all about. You get that power. You get that sense of immediate connection and a place where you can actually think, actually not think, uh, and just go away with the fairies and be with the fair people on the other side because it really does work if you put yourself in that environment they will that you know that those worlds will connect with you and you'll be surprised what you know how powerful you really are and how far you can travel
0: mm, i thank you for those in fact i have friends who travel to orkney um from time to time for this very purpose and absolutely love the energy i haven't yeah. been there yet that's what that's that's high on my list uh, so perhaps when are you going to orkney
1: uh, I just came back from Orkney actually, uh, but I'm going back to the Isle of Lewis next September, maybe even before that.
0: Isle of Lewis?
1: Yeah, that's where Carniche is.
0: L E W I S or L O U? Okay, Isle of Lewis, okay.
1: Quite sites within a 15 minute drive of each other, which are clean, clear, crisp. And uh, I take my people to Carniche three times on a weekend because once is not enough. And then I have to drag them back on the bus and put them back to the airport. It's hard to leave. That's what you should feel like when they were not adulterated by tourism.
0: Absolutely. Freddie, I want to thank you for uh, giving us those, you know, little bits of insight if we have a chance to get to those places in our respective continents. And uh, meanwhile, I wish you the best in wrapping up um, all the research on your book. When can we expect to see your book?
1: Oh, God. It's about four years behind schedule, but I'm up to chapter 10. Just another kind of fourteen chapters to do. So oh, hopefully by the end of the year, if I self-publish, which I probably will publish uh, a few copies on my other my own imprint. Otherwise, it'll be two years. Yeah. Uh, but I, I just want to beat Graham Hancock for once, because it <laughs> happens to something. My stuff is out of date, but we are working similar stuff with parallels to each other, and it all complements itself. So hopefully by the end of the year, I'll have something to show.
0: Excellent. That means early next year, we're on for another interview. So until then, I just want to thank you for taking the time today, Freddie. fascinating information. My pleasure. So again, if you want to connect with some of Freddie's work, he's a prolific author and has amazing visuals on his site. You can go to InvisibleTemple.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on ReginaMeredith.com.